Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Tolerance is an admirable intellectual gift, but it is of little worth in politics. Politics is a war of causes, a joust of principles. Absolute identity with one's cause is the first and great condition of successful leadership. 23-year-old Woodrow Wilson in 1879, in a speech he gave while studying at the law school at the University of Virginia. Wilson had no friends, only slaves and enemies. Thomas Gore, Democratic senator from Oklahoma in the early 20th century, and the maternal grandfather of Gore Vidal, after whom Vidal was named. Wilson's principles have remained the bedrock of American foreign policy thinking. Henry Kissinger Hey everybody, CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior and renaissance man for this new and ever-darkening dark age in which we find ourselves currently, back with another dose of dangerous history, and yes, you have read correctly after much anticipation, and on my part, much research and reading and thinking and planning and composing, which is still underway even as I begin this endeavor. Yes, my friends, here we go, this is the beginning of my hopefully epic, DHP Villains multi-part hit piece against the man that I consider the worst president, so far anyway, in American history, and that of course is Woodrow Wilson. Let me just say at the outset, I have no idea at the moment how many episodes this will end up being, or how long it will take me from the first episode to the last, and I make no predictions. It'll definitely be non-consecutive, with episodes on other topics interspersed in between, because, like I said, I am still researching aspects of Wilson's presidency as I'm starting to put out this first episode in the series. I think it'll probably be less episodes and less total time than the Civil War series was. But one thing I've definitely learned in over five years of Dangerous History podcasting is to let the muse take me where it wants to, let the research lead me where it leads me, and to not make any more hard and fast predictions or promises that things take as long as they take for me to do them right and do them the best I can. Amongst all the many denominations and sub-denominations of sort of libertarianish types of people in America today, 
Woodrow Wilson is probably the most frequently cited as the worst president in American history for a variety of reasons. And this is a case where I think the consensus among these people anyway is correct. But I think that even many people who, in my opinion correctly, identify Wilson as the worst president overall in American history, as the most damaging man to ever hold that office, even many of them may not quite realize just how multifaceted the case against Wilson is, just how many different angles and levels there are to the long-term ramifications of so many of Wilson's decisions and actions, both in domestic policy and in foreign policy, things that have negatively impacted the lives and liberties, not only of Americans, but of lots of millions of people around the world ever since. If you're someone who thinks that things like rights and liberties and peace and freedom are even pretty important values, you can't be a fan of Woodrow Wilson. Now, I'm not going to waste a ton of time here going over kind of previewing all of the low and lower lights of Wilson's political career in this introduction, as I'm going to go through them in excruciating and exacting, but hopefully still enlightening and entertaining detail over the course of however many episodes and hours this series ends up being. Given how poorly I think of most American presidents, the fact that I rank Wilson as the worst of the worst is not something that I say lightly or without a mountain of reasons based on a lot of research and a lot of thinking. Yes, it's true, there is no shortage of other horrible presidents in American history, but Wilson, for a long list of reasons, great or small, from many different angles, is again accumulating all of it together, in my opinion, the worst. So let's go ahead and get into it. In this episode, we'll cover Wilson's early life and most of his education, including his undergraduate experience at Princeton and his incomplete stint at the University of Virginia's School of Law. And we'll stop just short of his beginning his time as a graduate student at Johns Hopkins University, where he would ultimately earn his Ph.D. and enter full-fledgedly into academia. So, here we go. Let's begin this journey into the heart of darkness. So let's talk about Wilson's early life. Historian H.W. Brands writes that, quote, Wilson was from the South by way of the North, end quote. Wilson's mother was an immigrant of Scottish ancestry, though she was born just over the border from Scotland, technically in England, but to Scottish parents. And Wilson's father was the son of so-called Scots-Irish or Ulster Scots immigrants meaning Protestants from Northern Ireland whose ancestors had originally come from Scotland in the 17th century. Wilson's father, Joseph Wilson, was a Presbyterian minister, as was Wilson's maternal grandfather, his mother's father. And there were other Presbyterian ministers going back 
generations on both sides of his family tree. Woodrow Wilson's parents met in Ohio, and they married shortly before his father Joseph was ordained as a Presbyterian minister in 1849. Five years later, in 1854, they moved to the town of Staunton, Virginia, in the Shenandoah Valley, for Joseph to take advantage of a job opportunity. There, on December 28, 1856, Thomas Woodrow Wilson, later to be better known to the world as simply Woodrow Wilson, was born. Woodrow, by the way, was his mother's maiden name. And while December 28th is frequently listed as Wilson's birthday, he may have technically been born on the 29th, too, as there's apparently a family document that indicates he was born around 12.45 a.m., technically less than an hour into December 29th. Not that that's terribly important, but anyway, as a boy, he was usually called Tommy, and then as kind of an adolescent and young man, he would also sometimes be called Tom. And it was only as an adult that he decided he wanted to be called Woodrow. In 1858, the Wilson family relocated to Augusta, Georgia, again for Joseph to take another position as a pastor. This one paid much better, very well by the standards of mid-19th century America, and it was quite a prestigious post. And within the Southern Presbyterian Church hierarchy, Joseph Wilson was always very ambitious and always kind of looking for a better spot when he could get it. Augusta was a fairly large town by mid-19th century Southern standards, much larger than Staunton. Augusta had around 13,000 residents, almost half of whom were slaves. While Woodrow Wilson's mother apparently expressed a few qualms about the institution of slavery, Her husband, Joseph, though originally from the North, had no real problems with it at all, and was an enthusiastic supporter of it while it existed. In the split that took place in the antebellum period in many American Protestant denominations, including Presbyterianism, Joseph Wilson sided with his adopted region. In other words, When the Presbyterian Church, not long before the Civil War, split into northern and southern contingents around the issue of slavery, Joseph Wilson not only went along with the Southern Presbyterian faction, he was actually prominent in organizing the Southern Presbyterian Church and even hosted its founding assembly. And not surprising in light of all this, Joseph Wilson was perfectly comfortable with arguing for biblical support of the institution of slavery, as most Southern preachers of the time would have. And when secession came, he sided with the Confederacy and even briefly served as a chaplain in the Confederate Army. Interestingly, when Joseph had lived in Ohio previously, he had tended to side politically with the North on most issues. And he was involved with publishing a newspaper, for example, that was pro-high-tariff and anti-slavery positions which he then did a 180-degree turn against after he relocated to the South, and he even personally owned some slaves before enduring the Civil War. Joseph Wilson actually had two brothers who continued to live in the North and who became generals in the Union Army, but Joseph himself was a staunch Confederate and even served as the permanent clerk of the Southern Presbyterian Church for 37 years, so even for many years after the war was over. And on the morning of Sunday, January 6th, 1861, after Lincoln's election and the secession of South Carolina and as other states, including Georgia and the Deep South, were starting to debate secession, 
On the morning of Sunday, January 6, 1861, Reverend Joseph Wilson preached a sermon entitled Mutual Relations of Masters and Slaves as Taught in the Bible, in which he argued that in the Bible, God clearly supported the existence in both the New and Old Testament of the institution of slavery, and that man had no right and no authority to proscribe something that God himself had sanctioned, and that all the Bible and God did really regarding slavery was to encourage masters to be good masters. And so that's what the Reverend Wilson told his congregation they needed to do. That said, by the standards of Southern ministers at that time period, Reverend Wilson's attitudes on race were relatively mild and humane compared to many others. As A. Scott Berg writes in his huge and super detailed biography entitled Simply Wilson, quote, Because Dr. Wilson believed in educating all God's children, he taught a Sunday school class for Augustus Black youth. He welcomed Negro membership to his sermons, so long as they stayed in their place in the balcony. Considering segregation a policy that fostered harmonious race relations by preventing discord, he stood among the more liberal-minded preachers within the Southern Synods. End quote. So apparently there were other ministers in that time period whose attitude was like, we don't want blacks in our church at all, that kind of thing, keep them out. And so by comparison, Reverend Wilson with his segregationist policy regarding church was a little bit less racist, I guess. And most of Wilson's earliest childhood memories, Woodrow Wilson I'm talking about now, were related to the Civil War. Not surprising for a guy born in Georgia just a few years before the war kicked off. Many years later, as an adult, Woodrow Wilson wrote, quote, My earliest recollection is of standing at my father's gateway in Augusta, Georgia, when I was four years old, and hearing someone pass and say that Mr. Lincoln was elected and there was to be war, end quote. When Woodrow Wilson was a professor decades later, he wrote a book on the conflict called Division and Reunion. And in that book, he wrote, quote, The triumph of Mr. Lincoln was, in the South's eyes, nothing less than the establishment in power of a party bent upon the destruction of the Southern system and the defeat of Southern interests, even to the point of countenancing and assisting servile insurrection, end quote. And furthermore to that, aside from these overt northern attacks on slavery, Wilson wrote, quote, Southern pride, too, was stung to the quick by the position in which the South found itself. The whole course of the South had been described as one of systematic iniquity. Southern people had been held up to the world as those who deliberately despised the most righteous command of religion. They knew that they did not deserve such reprobation. They knew that their lives were honorable, their relations with their slaves human, their responsibility for the existence of slavery among them remote. End quote. Augusta wasn't hit by Sherman's march as so many other towns and cities in the region were. So the Wilson family avoided at least the direct impact of some of the worst of what a lot of other Georgians experienced. That said, the war and growing up in the South during that time period clearly shaped Wilson from early on. Wilson's southernness, if that's a word, was genuine, though it was a bit complex. Because despite Joseph Wilson's strong support of the Confederacy and of slavery, 
The Wilsons were relatively newcomers to the South. They weren't like the Lees or the Washingtons or the Byrds or the Carters or other famous Southern families whose ancestors had been in the region since the early colonial days. This is how A. Scott Berg describes Woodrow Wilson's Southern-ish identity. Quote, Woodrow Wilson was not, in truth, a dyed-in-the-wool Southerner, what with immigrant grandparents and an Ohio-born father. But he would repeatedly remind people that the only place in the country, the only place in the world where nothing has to be explained to me is the South. End quote. Young Tommy Wilson didn't really learn to read until he was somewhere between age 10 and 12. Different sources give different exact ages. And of course, it's not like it's an on off sort of thing between when you can't really read and when you can. So, you know, who knows? And of course, this is very ironic in light of the fact that he later became famous as a scholar, as a writer, as an orator, as an academic. And many people in modern times believe that Woodrow Wilson or Tommy Wilson, as he was called back then, likely had some form of developmental dyslexia. But once he did figure out how to read and write, he became intensely interested in those things and in rhetoric as well. One of the ways he would eventually learn to excel with the written word, despite his likely disability, was by learning a form of shorthand that seemed to help him out a great deal. Joseph Wilson, perhaps surprisingly for a Southern Presbyterian minister in the 19th century, seems to have had a relatively kind of liberal and humane attitude towards Tommy and his learning and his problems with it. Apparently, he never punished or humiliated young Tommy for being slow to learn his letters and then slow to learn to read. And instead, Joseph Wilson seems to have had an almost kind of unschooling attitude towards these things, wherein he would let Tommy learn things when he seemed ready to. And as a result, a lot of Tommy's early education is almost a little bit reminiscent of unschooling, with a lot of real-world experience, doing things like accompanying his father in his duties and his rounds as a minister, and having kind of Socratic-sounding conversations with his father, where his father asks him what he thinks about something and then asks follow-up questions to try and help him sort of tease it out better in his mind. That said, his father did have some high standards about certain things, and one of those that left a mark on Wilson for the rest of his life was precision in language. Joseph Wilson once told young Tommy, quote, When you frame a sentence, don't do it as if you were loading a shotgun, but as if you were loading a rifle. Don't fire in such a way and with such a load that while you hit the thing you aim at, you will hit a lot of other things in the neighborhood besides. But shoot with a single bullet, and hit that one thing alone. End quote. But just overall, based on everything we know about Joseph Wilson as a father, he seems to have been mostly a pretty benevolent, loving, positive father, especially by the standards of the 19th century. He enjoyed affectionate horseplay with his son, and seems to have had no issues with expressing affection uh, both physically and verbally, that sort of thing. He seems, while he had standards and certain things like that that he expected people to strive for, he seems like, again, based on what we have as evidence, that, you know, he wasn't abusive or violent or any of these sorts of things. And Woodrow Wilson would revere his father for the rest of his life and would frequently refer to his father along the lines of, he was my most important teacher, that sort of thing. After the Civil War ended, 
Tommy Wilson began to attend actual school for the first time, going to a boys' school that was set up in an old cotton warehouse in Augusta by a 24-year-old Confederate veteran named Joseph Derry. This school focused on classical education, and at this point in his academic career, Tommy Wilson was a mediocre student at best, compared to many of his classmates there. Many other students at this school, aside from future president Tommy Wilson, would go on to big things. Wilson's classmates at this little school included a future Supreme Court justice, a future dean of Columbia Law School, and a future congressman. As a boy, Tommy Wilson was already displaying some tendencies that would increase over the course of his life. And one of those was he was already becoming a staunch Anglophile. He loved everything British. And among other things, he would play that he was a Royal Navy or British Army commander, that sort of thing. And as a teenager, he would become just entranced with various important British intellectuals and statesmen, including the towering figure of late 19th century British liberalism, William Gladstone whose speeches Wilson intensely studied, and whose portrait he actually hung on the wall by his desk as a teenager. Also, by the time he was a teenager, if not even a bit earlier, Wilson began to be obsessed with political organization and constitutions, and with almost any group of people he got involved with, whether it was formal or informal, he would sooner or later, usually sooner, get involved with either creating or rewriting the group's constitution. For example, for a while toward the end of his adolescence, Wilson would often pretend he was a British Commodore of the Royal United Kingdom Yacht Club, but he quickly got more interested in the group's constitution than in the actual maritime side of things. Author Patricia O'Toole describes it this way in her book, The Moralist, Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made, quote, no longer content to rule his imaginary realms, Tommy yearned to organize them as well. The yearning, which became a lifelong passion, would culminate in his constitution for the world, the covenant of the League of Nations. End quote. So basically, what it looks like is, from early on, Wilson is a busybody control freak who wants to structure and micromanage people and institutions. There are lots of examples of this tendency of his, of wanting to organize any group and create its constitution. If you read Wilson by A. Scott Berg, which is so far the most detailed biography I've come across, what you see again and again is that throughout Wilson's childhood, adolescence, and into early adulthood, it's almost like a broken record. Woodrow Wilson gets involved with, or creates, some sort of a group or club and he either rewrites its constitution if it already had one, or he creates one if it doesn't have one, or if it was a newly created group. Now, if you want to be charitable, you would say, well, he likes organizing people. If you don't want to be charitable, you might say he's quite a bit of an OCD control freak who's uncomfortable with spontaneity and loose structure and those sorts of things. For example, when Wilson was still a boy, and when baseball was just starting to become popular in the U.S. and was still a relatively new sport, Tommy Wilson organized a bunch of his local friends and acquaintances into what he called the Lightfoot Baseball Club. Wilson was never very athletic himself, but he loved sports throughout his life and often was involved 
as a fan and in a few cases as sort of like a manager. This is how Scott Berg describes Wilson's early manifestations of all these tendencies in his self-created neighborhood baseball club. Quote, It became further evident that his interest in social activities accorded with his ability to run them. With Tommy Wilson's growing proclivity for neatness and order, his Lightfoots almost certainly became the first baseball team in the United States with its own constitution, written by the second baseman himself. Up a wooden ladder, in the hayloft of the stables behind the house, he conducted the Monday and Thursday meetings, all according to Robert's rules of order. There was a schedule for fines, a nickel for swearing, two and a half cents for vulgarities, and absences cost a dime. We knew how to make motions and second them, he recounted 45 years later. We knew that a motion could not have more than two amendments offered at the same time, and we knew the order in which the amendments had to be put, the second amendment before the first. Wilson granted that nothing important happened at these gatherings, but he recalled, I remember distinctly that my delight and interest was in the meetings, not in what they were for. Just the sense of belonging to an organization and doing something with the organization. It did not matter what. End quote. And all I can say is, wow. Wouldn't you like to play with little Tommy OCD control freak Wilson? Yeah, me neither. A kid who enjoys meetings of his baseball team to discuss rules and things more than he enjoys actually playing the fucking game. There's something a little bit pathological about that to anyone who's not also an OCD control freak like Wilson. Just as an aside here, my least favorite part of my day job is meetings. They're frequently too long, very boring, and mostly seem to convey information that either I already know, or that I don't need to know because it's irrelevant to my job. And the small percent of relevant new information I get from the meetings could be covered in either an email or else like a super short 10-minute condensed meeting. I spend most of my time in most meetings thinking about all the other stuff that's actually useful to doing my job that I could be doing with that time if I didn't have to be in the meeting. Contrast that to young Wilson, who takes great joy in meetings, just loves them, and he admits that he does so even if they're kind of pointless. And with that in mind, is it really that surprising that prior to getting into politics, Wilson was for many years a university administrator? Given how much of that job revolves around coming up with reasons to have meetings and then running those meetings? President of Princeton University was basically the perfect job for him. And if only he had stopped there with a job that couldn't do that much directly to infringe on the lives and liberties of countless millions of people. But I get ahead of myself. In 1870, the family moved to Columbia, South Carolina, where Joseph Wilson took a position as a theology professor at the Columbia Theological Seminary, and he continued to serve part-time as a minister as well. This was a very prestigious position, but one that actually came with a pay cut relative to his previous post. Columbia, South Carolina, was still in the process of recovering from having been burned by Sherman's forces late in the Civil War, and Reconstruction was in full swing when the Wilsons moved there. Like I mentioned earlier, Wilson was a big-time Anglophile from an early age, and as a teenager, he became a huge fan of William Ewart Gladstone, 
the dominant man in the British Liberal Party in the second half of the 19th century. Most of my listeners are Americans, so you may not be very familiar with Gladstone, but his career included 12 years as Prime Minister of Great Britain spread out over four different terms in the late 19th century. Gladstone and his main rival at the time, the conservative leader Benjamin Disraeli, alternated several times between themselves as prime minister in kind of the late Victorian era. For the most part, Gladstone was an archetypical late 19th century classical English liberal, so he was relatively libertarian, especially by modern-day standards, though he was by no means consistent and he did become a bit more like a 20th century liberal or progressive in regard to at least some issues toward the end of his career. Wilson, of course, would end up departing from classical liberalism much, much more over the course of his career. But he started off as, at least in self-identification and rhetoric, a classical liberal. Teenage Wilson described Gladstone as the greatest statesman who ever lived, and added, I intend to be a statesman, too. By his teenage years, Wilson seems to have overcome or at least learned to deal with his dyslexia or whatever he had, and he had jumped wholeheartedly into reading and writing. He was apparently a perfectionist when it came to his handwriting. Scott Berg says that Wilson, quote, practiced penmanship until it approached calligraphic perfection, end quote. Again, notice the OCD control freak perfectionism that's displayed here. Penmanship was always one of my lowest marks when I was in grades where they actually graded you on penmanship. My handwriting pretty much sucks. I basically forgot how to write in cursive almost as soon as they taught it to me. And this shows you a difference in personality. Wilson is spending countless hours on perfecting his handwriting. I don't give a shit. If it's good enough for me to read it later, that's good enough. It's just an interesting contrast in personality. Wilson grew up to be a control freak who wanted power so that he could rule over other people's lives and organize their lives. Someone like me? Not so much. In 1874, the Wilson family moved again, this time to Wilmington, North Carolina, where Reverend Wilson would be a pastor at the First Presbyterian Church, a move necessitated by the closing of the Columbia Theological Seminary. When Tom Wilson, which the future Woodrow Wilson typically called himself by this age, when Tom Wilson was 17, he began his higher education at Davidson College of North Carolina. Davidson was a Presbyterian college that offered free tuition to sons of ministers as well as to students who intended to become ministers themselves, and most of its faculty were ministers. By this time, Tom was showing some talent in writing and rhetoric. He got mostly A's and B's while at Davidson. His lowest grade his first semester was a C in math, though he upped that to a B the next semester. Wilson also got involved in campus life. He joined a club called the Euminian Society and became the club secretary. And when the club put on debates, Wilson got involved and found that he had a love and a skill for debating. However, he would only stay at Davidson for one year— before family and financial issues caused him to have to take a break from higher education. By 1875, Tom decided that he might like to continue his higher education up north, and after some thinking and research, he decided to go 
to the institution that was at that time officially called the College of New Jersey, the school located in Princeton, New Jersey, and which would later become simply known as Princeton University. Tom made the decision to go there in part because his father had previously attended a seminary that was also located in the town of Princeton, and also because his father knew the man who at that time was serving as the president of the College of New Jersey. The College of New Jersey, or Princeton University as we know it today, had a history of attracting a fair number of Southern students for a Northern school going back to long before the Civil War. In fact, James Madison was probably its most famous Southern alumnus before Woodrow Wilson himself. Seventy Princeton alumni had lost their lives fighting in the Civil War, and they were evenly exactly split 50-50 between Union and Confederate. So anyway, in September of 1875, Thomas Woodrow Wilson went north to Princeton to continue his higher education. So off to Princeton. On Wilson's second morning at Princeton, he had to attend an assembly in the chapel at which the college's president made them promise that while at Princeton they would have, quote, no connection whatever with any secret society, end quote. Princeton, or the College of New Jersey as it officially still was at the time, had actually previously banned Greek letter fraternities and any sort of hazing rituals and that type of stuff, and the school at the time was trying to minimize social exclusivity and cliques and those sorts of things, but students still, as they always will, were making other types of groups and things, and cliquishness continued in many different forms. And one of the ways this occurred was via what were called eating clubs, which Princeton apparently still has today. These are sort of like a combination of a dining hall and a social club, which you can join. And they're located in these big old mansion-type buildings, mostly located along one of the main roads that runs through the campus. Now, some of these were apparently more exclusive and snooty than others. Some were more secretive than others, despite the administration's opposition to secrecy and exclusivity. And Wilson started off at Princeton 
a bit shy and standoffish, which seems to have sort of been his default personality setting. And he was a little slow to make friends at first, probably in part because it was his first time outside the South in his life, and it was his first time this far from home and being alone by himself. But before long, he did start to make some friends and get involved with various extracurricular activities on campus. He joined an eating club that was called The Alligators, and I'm not sure how exclusive and or secretive this one was. It's not an eating club that still exists on Princeton today, as far as I've been able to tell. And as much as I can get a sense, I think it was pretty mundane of a club. You know, nothing cool and sexy like Skull and Bones or the Porcelain Club or Scroll and Key or one of these things. Wilson also got involved with the school paper, and in fact, by his senior year, he would be its editor. He also briefly played baseball, but he wasn't much of an athlete, though he did continue to be involved in the kind of administrative managerial side of sports. In addition to that, he joined a club called the American Whig Society, which, as far as I can tell, at least by Wilson's day, was no longer connected at all to the Whig Party, if it ever was. The Whig Party, of course, had been defunct in the U.S. since about the mid-1850s. And the American Whig Society at Princeton really was a literary and debate club that actually had been started by James Madison, one of Princeton's most famous alumni. Now, like I said, Wilson did make friends at Princeton, but he didn't make a large number of them. Instead, he made a small number of very close friends, most of whom remained close friends for the rest of his life. As this was the 1870s and sort of the waning days of Reconstruction, you know, barely a decade after the Civil War had ended, Wilson apparently did face some amount of anti-Southern prejudice from some of his classmates, enough that he wrote his parents about his anger about this, and they basically counseled him to just try to keep his cool and get along the best he could. While he was a student at Princeton, Wilson voiced strong opposition to the passage of the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which, if you don't know, was the amendment that guaranteed that voting rights could not be denied due to race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Basically, this amendment, its primary aim was to safeguard the voting rights of black men. In the 1876 presidential election, Woodrow Wilson supported Democrat candidate Samuel Tilden against Republican candidate Rutherford B. Hayes, though Wilson at the time was too young to vote himself, since the voting age at the time was 21 and Wilson was only 20. During the same election, by the way, another young man and future progressive president of the United States named Theodore Roosevelt supported Hayes because he was a Republican. Teddy Roosevelt was also too young to actually vote in 1876, and he actually was a couple of years younger than Wilson. This election, by the way, would be the one wherein Samuel Tilden unquestionably won the overall national popular vote, but the Electoral College vote was in dispute, and ultimately it would be settled in favor of the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, mainly because the Republicans controlled Congress at the time, and they were able to make a deal that allowed Hayes to be declared the winner of the electoral vote and become president, but in return for the Democrats kind of stepping aside and letting this deal happen, the Republicans would basically end Reconstruction in the South. Wilson supported Tilden in large part because of his having grown up in the South, and of course, you know, this making him, like most white Southerners of the time, just a knee-jerk Democrat. 
But also, in particular, Wilson liked Tilden because Tilden had a reputation as an anti-corruption crusader. And this appealed to Wilson's idealism. Interestingly, Wilson at the time was surprisingly realistic in his predictions of the future if the Democrats had won the election, writing, quote, The Democrats will be very likely to abuse power if they get it. Men are greedy fellows as a rule, end quote. Also during this time period, Wilson became even more interested in British politics and British statesmen and intellectuals, if anything, even more Anglophile and interested in the great British orators and writers past and present. Men like Edmund Burke, William Pitt, John Bright, and of course, William Gladstone. And Wilson began to think that the British political system had a lot of advantages over the American political system. Like lots of people in college, Wilson had no problem thinking he had the right answer to everything, and he had no problem asserting the rightness of those answers. Like the old saying, a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. For example, when Wilson was in between his freshman and sophomore years in the summer of 1876, July specifically, the United States was celebrating the centennial of the Declaration of Independence. Wilson, though, for his part, was not 100% on board with the festivities. Instead, he wrote at the time that America would be happier and better off, quote, if she had England's form of government instead of the miserable delusion of a republic. A republic, too, founded upon the notion of abstract liberty. I venture to say that this country will never celebrate another centennial as a republic. The English form of government is the only true one. End quote. During that same summer, Wilson wrote several religious-themed essays for his father's newsletter, writing under the pseudonym Twywood. One of these essays was entitled A Christian Statesman, and in it, Wilson expressed advice that he would completely forget by the time he himself held political office. He wrote, quote, when the statesman has become convinced that he has arrived at the truth and has before his mind the true view of his subject, he should be tolerant. He should have a becoming sense of his own weakness and liability to err. End quote. And as the quote that I began the very start of this episode with indicates, and as we'll see again and again and again in future episodes of this series, Wilson would not take his own advice when it comes to that particular statement. Instead, once he got political office, he would be rigidly self-righteous, never doubt himself, and he would always assume that anyone who disagreed with him had to be either stupid or evil. In other words, he would show none of the humility that he himself, as a young man, had advised Christian statesmen to have. In his sophomore year at Princeton, Wilson delivered a speech entitled The Ideal Statesman, in which he said, quote, The true statesman is one who has all the principles of the law carefully arranged in a vigorous mind, and to whom all the particulars as well as the broad principles of international law are as familiar as his alphabet. And not only should he have the law of his own country at his finger's ends, but he should be intimately acquainted with all the more important legislative actions of every country on the globe. End quote. And all I could say is, yeah, good fucking luck with that. 
Also during his sophomore year, Wilson was one of the founders of what was called the Liberal Debating Club at Princeton, which would hold contests at which speakers would debate various current issues. Wilson, of course, wrote the Constitution for the club. The Liberal Debating Club would also hold regular meetings on Saturday nights, at which they would hold various debates and discussions, and its overall structure and procedures were modeled on the British Parliament. Like I sort of mentioned before, Wilson was involved with sports at Princeton a bit, though he wasn't much of an athlete and didn't play for very long. He did, however, get himself elected secretary of the school's football association, in which position, in the words of A. Scott Berg, Wilson, quote, became the moving force behind the sport on the Princeton campus. He organized the team, raised money for its equipment, and as a coach, even devised plays, insisting on their being followed, end quote. He also got himself elected president of the Baseball Association. By his junior year, Wilson had been elected Speaker of the Wake Society, which was the club's highest honor, and many of his contemporaries considered him to be the best debater in the group. During his time as a Princeton student, Wilson had become very, very enamored with the writings and thoughts of the English intellectual Walter Badgett, who had written a book in the 1860s called The English Constitution. And this seems to have contributed a lot to Wilson's belief at the time that the United States should reform its entire system in order to make it more like the British parliamentary system. Badgett had argued that the British system was superior to the American system because the British system blended the legislative and executive branches of government together more, and that this prevented deadlocks from happening. So, in the British system, the prime minister and his cabinet, which in practical terms really function as the executive, even though, you know, the old John Locke theory is that the monarchy is the executive, but certainly by the 19th century, you could make a strong case that that's not really true, and the monarchy is primarily a figurehead most of the time. And that in functional terms, it's the prime minister and his cabinet that are really the executive. And in the British system, as it had evolved by the mid-19th century, the prime minister and his cabinet are actually in the parliament, and they're unable to hold their positions if they lose their majority in the House of Commons, whereas in the U.S., with its much more separated executive and legislative branches, the president is elected completely separately from the House and Senate, and a president can stay around even if one or both houses of the legislature have majorities of the other party. Now, of course, the framers of the Constitution in the U.S., mostly thought that these sorts of checks and balances and, and very strong separations between the different branches of government, which were intended to limit how active the government could be in instituting rapid changes that might be detrimental to people's freedoms, that this was a good thing. But to Wilson, as to most American progressives, checks and balances were not seen as a feature, but as a bug of the American system. They got in the way of the ability of the government to make rapid sweeping changes. Wilson is not a fan of the concept of limited government. During his senior year at Princeton, Wilson worked on what would become a very long 8,500-word political science essay based on some of the ideas he'd been articulating in the Liberal Debating Club. In fact, he became so engrossed in working on this essay that he actually resigned his presidency of the Baseball Association to be able to work on it more. 
Shortly after he graduated from Princeton, he got this essay published in the journal International Review. In this essay, he argued in favor of making the American political system more like the British one. And he argued that by making the American cabinet responsible to Congress, as the British cabinet was responsible to Parliament, a lot of things would be made better. At this time, Wilson believed that the executive branch in America was particularly corrupt and that by forcing the cabinet to have to defend itself in Congress in debates on a regular basis, the cabinet would become less corrupt. Wilson also thought these changes would make the Congress into more of a deliberative body like the British Parliament, because he thought one of the big problems in Congress at the time was that the committees really made the important decisions, and that this provided an opportunity for lots of corruption and special interest politicking, whereas if the whole Congress was forced to openly debate important issues, there would be more transparency and less corruption. Now, of course, one effect of these sorts of changes would be that it would merge the legislative and executive branches together more, rather than having them separate and potentially oppositional in the sort of checks and balances mode favored by people like James Madison. But again, like I mentioned before, to someone like Wilson, having the legislative and executive branches more oppositional to each other was a problem, because it prevented government from being more active. Now, Interestingly, and somewhat ironically, in light of what happens decades later, the editor at International Review who accepted this piece for publication was none other than Henry Cabot Lodge, who many decades later, as a Republican senator from Massachusetts, would be arguably the most significant political archenemy to then-President Woodrow Wilson. A. Scott Berg quips of this irony, quote, It would not be Lodge's last assessment of Wilson's political philosophy, but it would be his most generous. End quote. By the way, Wilson's senior thesis at Princeton was entitled Our Kinship with England. So one thing he definitely had in common with Lodge was Anglophilia. Wilson graduated from the College of New Jersey in 1879, ranked 38th in a class of 105. So well within the upper half of the graduating class and almost, though not quite, in the top third. A few of his grades in math and science seem to have kept him out of the top third, even though he did earn a 90% average overall. The Princeton graduating class of 1879 contained not only future President Wilson, but also a future Justice of the Supreme Court, two future congressmen, a future Attorney General of the state of New Jersey, and several other young men who would go on to various prestigious jobs. And around the time that he was graduating from Princeton, Wilson stopped asking to be called Thomas, Tom, or Tommy, and instead started going by his middle name, Woodrow. Now, at the time, some relatives and old friends continued to call him Tommy or Tom or whatever, but other than that, he was now increasingly known as Woodrow Wilson. After graduating from Princeton in the spring of 1879, that fall, Wilson would attend law school at the University of Virginia the university famously founded by Thomas Jefferson. He later wrote that he went to law school primarily because he ultimately intended to get into actual politics, not because he really wanted to be a lawyer. And back then, just like today, the resume of the overwhelming majority of politicians included some sort of legal education and time spent as a lawyer. For the most part, once he got there, Wilson was not terribly impressed by the University of Virginia, nor by the study of law itself, although 
He was impressed with at least one of his professors, a guy named John Barbie Minor, who was at the time the head of UVA's law school. Wilson biographer Scott Berg says that Minor was second only to Wilson's father in terms of impacting the future president's education. Part of Wilson's lack of enthusiasm for the University of Virginia may have been due to the kind of complicated and at most partial nature of his southernness. This is how Scott Berg explains it. Quote, Since Wilson was an avowed Federalist, an ardent admirer of Alexander Hamilton, a believer in dominant central government, a Southerner without Southern blood who did not embrace states' rights, all the surrounding Jeffersonia of the University of Virginia was lost on him. End quote. Now, despite this, Wilson ended up joining a literary and debating club on campus with the name the Jefferson Society. Wilson, surprisingly, or not, got himself made the secretary of the club within only weeks of joining, and records show that he was signing things T. Woodrow Wilson at this point. He started to become somewhat of a campus celebrity in December of 1879, when he was asked to present the medals for the college's field day, and he apparently gave some sort of a charming speech that had some lighthearted humor in it as well as some more serious comments. And after that, he began to attract sort of a local following, and people began to look forward to any occasion when Wilson would be speaking. In March of 1880, not only University of Virginia students and faculty and staff, but townspeople of Charlottesville came in large numbers to hear Wilson give a more serious intellectual speech, this one about the British statesman John Bright, who was one of Wilson's many British heroes. In this speech, Wilson revealed thinking that would end up characterizing his conduct decades later when he held actual political office, and which was starkly in contrast to those remarks in his Christian Statesman essay that I mentioned a little bit earlier. It was in this 1880 speech that Wilson argued, quote, Tolerance is an admirable intellectual gift, but it is of little worth in politics. Politics is a war of causes, a joust of principles. Absolute identity with one's cause is the first and great condition of successful leadership. End quote. That is, of course, the same quote that I opened with at the very beginning of this episode. Which, to my mind, only somewhat facetiously begs the question Was Woodrow Wilson actually a Sith Lord? In this same speech, Wilson made some rather interesting comments regarding the Confederacy. Now, during the Civil War, John Bright, the topic of this speech Wilson was giving, had been opposed to the Confederacy and to Southern independence. Now, here's Wilson in the university founded by Thomas Jefferson, surrounded mostly by Southern people, and this is his defense of Bright's opposition to the Confederacy. Quote, I yield to no one precedence in love for the South. But because I love the South, I rejoice in the failure of the Confederacy. The perpetuation of slavery would, beyond all question, have wrecked our agricultural and commercial interests at the same time that it supplied a fruitful source of irritation abroad and agitation within. We cannot conceal from ourselves the fact that slavery was enervating our Southern society and exhausting to Southern energies. End quote. 
Notice that Wilson here is not rejecting slavery because of questions of morality of it. He's rejecting it primarily as a hindrance to the South's progress and development. Now, if you want to give him the benefit of the doubt, you could say it's possible he may have been making this argument this way because of who his audience was. You know, a good speaker at least takes into account who his audience is and may craft his argument a little bit differently depending on who he's speaking to. And Wilson's audience at this speech would have been mostly Southerners who would have been completely closed off in regard to any argument against slavery based primarily on moral grounds. Or it's possible that this really was the main reason that Wilson was glad the Confederacy failed and that slavery was abolished in the 1860s. Or it could be both, and maybe that's the most likely answer. But either way, Wilson closed this speech by saying of the United States, quote, I see one people, and one language, and one law, and one father over all that wide continent, the home of freedom, and a refuge for the oppressed of every race and every clime, end quote. So it seems like, based on these remarks, Wilson's coming down ultimately against Southern independence and glad that the Confederacy didn't prevail wasn't really based on his opposition to the South's racial attitudes and policies, most of which, other than the institution of slavery itself, Wilson seems to have been totally fine with. Instead, it was a combination of progressivism broadly defined here, meaning that slavery was bad primarily because it stood in the way of further Southern progress. So a combination of broadly defined progressivism and then nationalism, the idea that a large, consolidated, centralized, relatively homogenous nation-state ruled by one powerful political authority was an intrinsically good thing to be celebrated as a good in its own right, and therefore it's a very good thing that the Confederacy didn't get its independence. In April of 1880, the Jefferson Society conducted a debate between Wilson and another talented speaker and debater, another UVA student named William Cavill Bruce, he and Wilson were sort of like rivals. They were the two most talented debaters and speakers at the school at the time. And some thought that Wilson was superior, some thought that Bruce was superior, but it was neck and neck. The debate between these two students drew such a big crowd that it had to be relocated to a new venue from its original facility. The proposition they were debating was as follows. Is the Roman Catholic element in the United States a menace to American institutions? As of this recording, I've not been able to verify with absolute certainty that Wilson was arguing the pro side of this statement. In other words, arguing that the Roman Catholic element in the United States is a menace to American institutions. But I'm 99.9% certain he was arguing that side of it, because one can find lots of anti-Catholic statements in his speeches and writings throughout his adult life, though not surprisingly, much less so when he's running for president, and of course he needed the northern urban immigrant Catholic vote to stay as a loyal part of the Democratic Party's coalition if he wanted to have even a prayer of winning. Often, Wilson's anti-Catholicism and his sort of xenophobic anti-immigrant sentiments in general blended together, as they did, in the minds of so many Anglo-Saxonist types back then. But just to cite one specific example 
from around this period in Wilson's life, just two years later in 1882, Wilson wrote a letter to the editor that was published in the North Carolina Presbyterian, in which he called the Catholic Church, quote, an organization which, whenever and wherever it dares, prefers and enforces obedience to its own laws rather than to those of the state, end quote. So, he objected to Catholicism primarily because it tended to divert, in his mind, its followers from what I would characterize as the civil religion of statism, which, of course, in my mind, is like one of the better things you could say about the Catholic Church, not that it even always does that. So, when you look at that, I think it's almost certain that he was arguing the anti-Catholic side of that proposition, and Woodrow Wilson, we know, would never argue a side in a debate that he didn't actually personally agree with. There were other occasions where he actually refused to participate in a debate because someone was trying to assign him to the argument, the side of the argument that wasn't what he actually believed, and he would say, no, I can't do that. So, when you put all this together, this is why I can say that it's nearly, you know, virtually 100% certain that Wilson was arguing in favor of this anti-Catholic resolution. On an unrelated note, while he was attending the University of Virginia, Woodrow Wilson fell in love for the first time in his life with his own first cousin. Her name was Harriet Augusta Woodrow, and she was known as Hattie. And at the time, she was attending the Augusta Female Seminary in Staunton, the town in which Wilson had been born, which was a fairly short train ride from Charlottesville. Wilson had been pen pals with her while he was at Princeton, and then when he went to UVA, he started to visit the relatives in Staunton on holidays. Interestingly, by the way, around the time that he's striking up this relationship with Harriet Augusta Woodrow is when he's beginning to say that he prefers people to call him Woodrow Wilson instead of Tom or Tommy or whatever. So he's making his first name her last name. Now, is he doing this consciously as, you know, sort of like how people will sit around and um, the stereotype is typically that like young ladies will sit around practicing their signature with their last naming, the last name of some guy they have a crush on, that sort of thing. In other words, is Wilson consciously switching to Woodrow because it's her last name? Or is it a subconscious Freudian thing that he's not even aware consciously, and he actually does think that the real reason that he wants to switch his name from Tom or Tommy to Woodrow is because Woodrow sounds more sophisticated and grown up, and he's unaware that there's this weird Freudian thing going on? I don't know. But it is interesting. Scott Berg writes this about Wilson's relationship with Hattie Woodrow. Quote, it was the first romance for either of them. Hattie kept him at bay, but her resistance only stimulated him further, nearly to the point of desperation. He bought her a beautiful edition of Longfellow, her favorite poet, and he whiled away hours just listening to her sing and play piano. After she had performed at a concert, Tommy applauded exuberantly enough to embarrass her. He took to ditching class and missing trains back to school. He made unauthorized trips to Staunton, and he spent hours writing long letters to her. At last, the university reprimanded him. His parents approved of their son's romantic intentions, but not at the cost of his education. End quote. 
So Wilson's parents were fine with him having a thing for his own first cousin. Their only criticism was that he was letting it get in the way of his studies, and it was getting him in some trouble at school. It was during the summer after his first year at law school that Wilson officially announced that from now on he wanted everyone to call him Woodrow, and he said that he thought Tommy wasn't suitable for a grown-ass man. Now, these are my words, not his exact words, but that's basically what he kind of said. When he returned to school after that summer, he continued to write frequently to Hattie, but he seems to have curtailed his visits and tried to dive back into his studies, though he still kind of chafed at studying the law. That fall, he was elected the president of the Jefferson Society. His number one priority for the club was, surprise, surprise, rewriting its constitution and bylaws. But before his proposed reforms could actually be voted on, Wilson left UVA, mainly citing health problems. He was a year and a half into the school's two-year law program. His parents had actually been suggesting that he might want to quit for a while, and Wilson had actually been resistant. But apparently he did have some pretty serious respiratory and gastrointestinal problems that had been dogging him for quite a while. And so his parents, as much as they were supporters of him getting his education, they also were even more concerned about his health. Wilson then moved back in with his parents in Wilmington, North Carolina for a while, continuing to study law, history, politics, and rhetoric on his own. He also resumed a very significant correspondence with his cousin Hattie, who had moved to Ohio. The next summer, Wilson went to visit her in Ohio and stayed with Hattie's parents. While they were attending some sort of party, Wilson did the following, as described by his biographer Scott Berg. Quote, He strode onto the dance floor and asked Hattie to leave with him so that they could speak alone. In the words of Hattie's daughter years later, and this is Berg quoting Hattie's daughter, he told her how much he loved her, that he could not live without her, and pleaded with her to marry him right away. Now back to the words of Berg. Practically speechless, Hattie declined. She said it would not be right for them to marry because they were first cousins. Woodrow rebutted that he had already secured the blessing for such a union from both his parents and hers the bloodlines notwithstanding. At last, Hattie uttered the long, unspoken truth, that she simply did not love him the way he wished her to. End quote. That night, Wilson left Hattie's parents' house and went and stayed at a hotel. The next morning, he met with Hattie again and tried to change her mind about everything, but she simply wouldn't budge. Wilson left the following morning by train, And during a layover in Kentucky, Wilson wrote her one more love letter in which he requested that she should get a formal photo portrait done, and he would pay for it, and then she would send it to him. He was very specific in the details of how he wanted this picture done. According to Berg, quote, He specifically requested that she wear her pink dress with its modestly cut neckline and that she appear in profile. Furthermore, he instructed, now this is Wilson's words, let the picture include your figure to the waist. Let your head be slightly bent forward and your eyes slightly downcast. Back to the words of Berg, and he wanted her hair off her face, gently braided and piled high in the back. He insisted that he alone should possess the photograph. 
had he sent the photograph almost exactly as directed. And then she ended her correspondence with her cousin. End quote. So maybe Woodrow Wilson is not only a Sith Lord, but also a bit of a Lannister, although thankfully, his cousin at least had the good sense to ultimately get away from him, even if she didn't have the good sense to not send this creep the picture that he requested in such creepily specific detail. Although maybe she saw it as, you know, throwing a stake to a hungry dog so it'll leave you alone. And all I can say is, I really don't want to think about what Woodrow Wilson might have done with this very specifically requested picture of his first cousin. In 1882, Woodrow Wilson moved to Atlanta, Georgia to become a lawyer. This was a huge change for him on a number of levels. Scott Berg writes of Wilson at this point in his life, quote, At 25, Wilson had never lived in a major city and, except for the occasional token fee for an article, had never earned a dollar, end quote. So, you know, you add that to him creeping on his cousin like he did, and this sure is looking like the recipe for a real winner, isn't it? A 25-year-old who's never really had a real job or lived in a big city, and who just got over a creepy crush on his cousin. In fact, when he lived in Atlanta, and less than half-acidly played at being a lawyer, he partnered in shared office space with a relative, some sort of distant relative, I'm not sure exactly, of what sort, a man named Edward Rennick. And during that time period, Wilson did almost no actual legal work and largely lived off a monthly allowance that his father was still sending him. He really did not like lawyering, and he dragged his feet on actually taking the Georgia bar exams. In fact, he was already writing to his parents that he was considering quitting the profession of law before he was even admitted to the bar. Scott Berg writes this of Wilson's rather brief and unhappy time as a lawyer, quote, Plainly more interested in the subject of the law than in its practice, Wilson never considered it anything more than a stepping stone. Unwilling to solicit business, he procured not a single client. He wrote political articles on the side and waited for clients to come to his door. End quote. In the fall of 1882, a man named Walter Hines Page paid a visit to Edward Rennick, Wilson's relative and partner, because the two were friends. They had known each other for some time back. Walter Hines Page was then a rising star journalist from North Carolina, who would pretty soon become a publisher and a significant player in the newspaper industry, at a time when that was still really the only real form of news media that existed. Prior to this visit and prior to meeting Woodrow Wilson, Page had been, for a time, one of the first graduate students at Johns Hopkins University, which was the first American university to offer European, meaning mostly German, style graduate degrees as we know them today, including, as far as I know, the first PhD program in America. And while Page had actually not completed his graduate work at Johns Hopkins, he spoke about it with Wilson and seems to have perhaps planted a seed of an idea of what to do next in life in Wilson's mind. 31 years later, in 1913, President Wilson would make Walter Hines Page, who continued to be a friend of his during this whole time, the United States Ambassador to the UK, which meant that Page would be the American ambassador to the court of St. James when World War I broke out. And it would be him, along with Edward Mandel House, of course, who would be 
very important in gradually persuading Wilson to pursue first indirect and then direct American intervention into the conflict on the side of the British. But when they first met in 1882, Page was covering the U.S. government's Tariff Commission at the time, which was holding hearings about possibly lowering some of the very high tariffs that were in place. Wilson, like most Southerners and Democrats, oppose high tariffs. This is one of, by the way, the very, very few issues on which I actually agree with Woodrow Wilson. And Page and Wilson discussed the tariff issue a bit when they first met, and Wilson impressed Page with his knowledge of the issue enough that Page arranged for Wilson to come speak to a commission hearing that was taking place in Atlanta the next day. Wilson spoke to the commission for about a half hour, to no real great practical effect, even though Page did give him favorable coverage in his reporting on it. While Page was staying in Atlanta, Woodrow Wilson organized a discussion group consisting of himself, Page, and a few other friends who he knew were interested in tariff reform. Wilson gave the group the name the Georgia House of Commons, again notice the Anglophilia, and even though this was a rather short-lived and rather informal discussion group, Wilson, some of you might be guessing it, wrote the group a constitution. Yes, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm getting together with a handful of friends to informally discuss something, my first urge is to write us a constitution so that everything is nice and OCD'd out. In October of 1882, Wilson finally took his Georgia bar examination, and according to one of the judges, he did a good job. One of the judges who conducted the oral exams that Wilson took said that Wilson gave a performance that was, quote, not short of brilliant, end quote. However, despite having aced his bar exams, Wilson continued to do virtually no real work as a lawyer. In the spring of 1883, Wilson's uncle, a man named James Woodrow, who was at the time president of South Carolina College, suggested that Wilson might want to go into academia and become a professor. And this, combined with the things Wilson had already been thinking and his conversations with Page, no doubt about Johns Hopkins University, convinced Wilson to soon thereafter apply to the Ph.D. program at Johns Hopkins, and he was accepted for admission for the fall. Before he left Georgia to go to graduate school up in Maryland, while he was on a trip to the town of Rome, Georgia, Wilson attended church there on Sunday and found himself very, very attracted to a young woman who was there, who, at least this time, wasn't his first cousin. Her name, he would soon find out, was Ellen Louise Axon, often called Ellie Lou. It turned out that her father was a reverend named Samuel Axon, who actually knew Wilson's father because he had worked for him years ago. Wilson met and spoke with Reverend Axon, and Axon introduced his daughter to him. Patricia O'Toole describes Ellie Lou as, quote, 23, and her charms included a petite figure, glowing complexion, expressive brown eyes, and a profusion of coppery curls. A stranger needed only a few minutes in her company to see that she was warm, intelligent, and well-read, end quote. The two seem to have hit it off pretty quickly, although it seems like Wilson at least initially probably liked her more than the reverse. But she was receptive to him for the most part, and as a result, Wilson extended his stay in Rome to spend more time with her, and he even managed to make a few more trips to Rome from Atlanta while he was still living in Georgia. In August, Wilson went to the uplands of western North Carolina to stay with his parents there, 
And then in mid-September, he would leave for Baltimore, Maryland to, of course, begin his graduate studies at Johns Hopkins, where his already existing political ideologies would be molded further in the same direction, under a very heavy influence of German historicism. Something that we'll talk about in much more detail in a future episode where I'm planning on getting into Wilson's body of work while he was an academic. But anyway, it just so happened that while Wilson was spending some time in Western North Carolina, Ellen Axon, Ellie Lou, also happened to be in the area visiting her family. And Wilson managed to meet with her before he left for Maryland, and he proposed to her. And after some initial hesitation, she ultimately accepted. So as he departed for Johns Hopkins University, now engaged to a woman he had a thing for, and on a career path that he believed would suit him much more than being a lawyer, Woodrow Wilson was a very happy man. you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, 
as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.